Right. Uh, well, a very good evening, all. Uh, first, I'd like to congratulate everybody um, getting here through the um, various storms and ice and so on. Uh, welcome to the LSE and to... Excuse me. <clears throat> if you're not normally at the LSE, welcome to the LSE. And if you are, hello again. And lots of alumni in the audience this evening, so it's good to see you too. Good to see everybody. Now, this evening event is... Uh, uh, entitled Brexit, What Next?, which is kind of quite a big title, a big subject, really, isn't it? Still, um, the hashtag is hashtag LSE Brexit. Uh, I'm Tony Travers uh, from the Institute of Public Affairs, but I'm here tonight representing, representing both the IPA and the European Institute, who are um, co-sponsoring uh, this event. And uh, the event is an opportunity for Hilary Benn, I'll say a little bit more about him in a moment, to... Uh, address, I think, rather than answer the question, address the issue of Brexit, what next? Uh, just to say a couple of words of my own before we start. I mean, it seems to me that, and everybody will know this in this room, Brexit is possibly the single most all-consuming political event, yeah. certainly in the medium to, over a medium to longer term, anything that's occurred in Britain since 1945. Nothing quite like it, and uh, it shows no sign of, of abating. Indeed, it's all-consuming and divisive. I would say it's sort of induced a sort of culture war, something that overlays conventional left-right politics uh, in a way that creates very powerful, um, like a powerful magnet on all the major political parties, distorting everything they do, not only to do with whether and how, or how I should say, the UK leaves the European Union. It's also produced a fascinating standoff between uh, Parliament and the Crown. Uh, not quite the most obvious version of that since the English Civil War, but there are elements of that about it. Parliament is asserting itself, the question is how much, and the Crown, represented by the government, is trying to push through a policy it's committed to, and that is a, a separate and interesting constitutional challenge, certainly for me. Having said that, uh, select committees, and Hillary is the chair of a select committee, operate in a non-partisan way. Select committee chairs work hard to have as few or no votes in their committees. So running this select committee must be an extremely difficult job, um, even more difficult than normal, given the intensity of the culture war nature of the issues. And, of course, the challenge for the whole of government and for Parliament is that Brexit is an issue with a deadline, or at least some kind of a deadline, albeit maybe a soft deadline or a hard deadline. We'll hear about that in a moment. But there's no doubt that the way Parliament and the government interact in this uh, is going to be, is going to, out of that will come the resolution of this most interesting issue. And to speak about that is uh, Hilary Benn. Hilary is the Labour Member of Parliament for Leeds Central. Uh, previously, he served as International Development Secretary, as Minister in the Home Office, Secretary of State at the Department of the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, and a Shadow Leader of the House, Shadow Secretary of State for Communities and Local Government, and Shadow Foreign Secretary. He was elected Chair of the Exiting the European Union Select Committee in October 16, so he is the sole holder of that uh, chair so far. And... Um, all I'd say is, in, given all I've said about the cultural nature of this, I think it's fair to say that Hilary Benn is one of a number of parliamentarians of all parties who manages to address this most complex issue 
in a mannered and uh, discursive way rather than all the other ways that it sometimes is addressed. So, ladies and gentlemen, Hilary Payne. Well, Tony, thank you very much for that introduction. Good evening. Thank you, uh, first of all, for the invitation. It's a good start, dropping bits of my notes. Uh, first of all, for the invitation to join you here at the LSE today. This is an institution that is world-renowned for its research, its excellence, but I think perhaps above all for its contribution to debate about ideas. Now, I must begin by saying that I'm really sorry that the idea of Brexit um, has brought us together this evening. I was a passionate Remainer. I remain a passionate Remainer, but we lost. And I do hope that the title of my talk this evening, you always get an email saying, what's the title? And you have to think of something. (laughs) I hope that that will not have led to any misunderstanding on the part of uh, those of you present this evening, because I wouldn't want the title to inadvertently suggest that what is going to happen next is in any way clear or certain, because it isn't. And when people say, how's Brexit going, Hillary? I say, to be frank, it's a bit of a mess. Um, But we are at an absolutely crucial stage in the process, and we are running out of time. Now, it's 19 months since the referendum result, and there are just nine months to go to the end of the negotiations, which are meant to be concluded by October. And yet we still don't know exactly what the government wants for our future economic relation with the European Union after we leave. And thus far, the answer to that question has been to talk about Brexit means Brexit. I'm not going to give you a running commentary. Uh, A deep, special and bespoke partnership, as if we were going into a tailor's and ordering a suit. Or most recently, if you saw Jeremy Corbyn's questions to the PM on uh, yesterday, ambitious managed divergence. Now, I thought I would come to a a seat of great learning today in the hope that someone might be able to advise me as to what ambitious managed divergence means. Now, why is this? Because there is a huge gap between, on the one hand, the aims that the government has uh, expressed, and on the other, how they might be achieved in practice. And I would argue that we've now reached the point where this lack of clarity simply won't do any longer. And the Prime Minister is making a speech tomorrow. And I think the government needs to tell us, Parliament, the people what it is they're seeking, but even more important than that, it needs to tell us what trade-offs it is prepared to make in order to achieve the things it says it wants. Because there are consequences to the choices it has made thus far, and they cannot be avoided. And that brings us to the central question of the customs union and the single market. Now, continuing tariff-free trade is absolutely essential to the British and to the EU economy. The simplest and the best way of achieving that would, of course, be to remain uh, in a customs union, a course of action that David Davis, if you're interested, was once in favour of. He wrote an article about uh, why he thought it was a good idea, but that was before he became the Brexit secretary. It's what I think we should do. It's what the Director-General of the CBI, Carolyn Fairburn, thinks we should do. And it is what the Labour Party now supports following the speech made by Jeremy Corbyn on Monday of this week. Now, why? Because 44% of our exports go into 
our biggest single market, the other member states of the European Union, because a further 17% of our exports go to the countries with whom we already have a trade agreement, because those agreements have been negotiated by the EU on behalf of all of the member states. Uh, and one of the tasks will be to roll those over, not just in the transition, but subsequently if the, co- the government's current uh, policy uh, holds. And then a further 19% of our exports go to a country, the country to which we sell more than, than to any other country in the world. And by the way, it's a country with which we do not currently have a trade agreement. What country is it? The USA. You're absolutely right. Now, do we really think that the new president of the United States of America is terribly keen for us to sell more stuff to America? When I last checked, he was a a bit of a protectionist. What do you think the reaction from India is? Well, we saw it when the Prime Minister went to Delhi. She said, can we talk about trade? And the Indian government said, oh, before we're going to talk about trade, how about some visas for our citizens? Government has a net migration target over here. It's crazy it includes students. I think there's almost nobody, even in government, who thinks it's sensible to include student numbers in the net migration target. And has China suffered enormous disadvantage because it does not have a trade agreement currently with the European Union? Now, I would argue, uh, in the pocket of probably every single person in this lecture theatre tonight, is the proof that China hasn't suffered any disadvantage because you produce something that people want to buy and it works you're going to sell a lot of it, which is why 19% of our exports go to the United States of America. Now, trade negotiations are complex for a reason, and that reason is very simply because they involve negotiation between two countries. Each of them is trying to protect their own position and seek to gain advantage in the other's market and vice versa. And I would simply say that the idea that being in the European Union has somehow prevented the United Kingdom from trading with the rest of the world is frankly a nonsense. It is a complete nonsense that is not supported by the facts. What does make sense is for the UK to continue to be part of a customs union, which has given us and the 27 member states so much. And I would also say this, it doesn't matter how long the government tries to delay the trade bill returning to the House of Commons, we will eventually get that bill, we will eventually have a vote on the amendment that's been put down by Anna Soubry and other Conservative Remainers, Uh, to keep us in a customs union, and we will see what Parliament decides when that moment comes. Now, secondly, the single market. It is true that we start from a position of alignment with the European Union, but we're going to hear a lot more about divergence in the months ahead. And the question that the EU is asking the British government is, well, you say you want to diverge, well, to what extent and where? Now, Michel Barnier, uh, President Macron and others have made it very clear. If the UK wants to remain in a customs union and the single market, then the EU will facilitate this. But if the Prime Minister, first of all, continues to insist on all of her red lines and on the idea of managed divergence, then that will inevitably narrow the range of options that are available when the negotiations on the future partnership finally begin. And I'm sure many of you have seen the famous stepped ladder that Michel Barnier produced in which he says, these are all the different options, these are the reasons why the UK won't be able to accept them, red line, red line, red line, and he ends up at the bottom with Canada, the CETA deal, and when he saw us in November, he said, OK, I suppose we could offer you a Canada dry agreement, which proves that he has a sense of (laughs) humour. Now, the UK worries about free movement, and that is an issue that does need to be addressed, 
But the EU, it seems to me, worries about three things. The first is maintaining the unity of the 27, having just lost um, one of its most important member states. And they don't want to offer Britain too good a deal that some other member states say, hmm, can I have one of those, please? So that is an issue for the 27. Secondly, they worry that we might be looking for a deal like Switzerland's. Well, actually, the Switzerland deal is about 60 different deals in which there is endless debate and discussion about how this or that new European rule might or might not apply to Switzerland. And the EU really doesn't want to contemplate big, bolshy Britain having the same relationship in future, in which we're always saying as a non-member state, well, hang on a minute, what about this, what about that? And the third reason is that there is a fear that the UK will use its newfound freedom, in inverted commas, to gain a competitive advantage, which we will then use to sell into the European market, whether it's goods or services, through the door that we are asking in the negotiation the EU to leave open for Britain as we depart the European Union. And so we find that two-thirds of the way through the withdrawal process, we haven't even yet started negotiating that future relationship. It is astonishing. And why are we in this position? Well, because of the Cabinet's inability. It's an open secret. You only have to open the newspapers every single day to see the different views being expressed. The inability of the Cabinet to reach agreement amongst itself, uh, never mind starting to try and negotiate for whatever it is they finally reach agreement on. Because the government appears to be contemplating with equanimity going into a negotiation in which, because of the red lines it has set out, it is almost certain that it will come away with a deal that is less good than the deal we currently have. And that must be a first in international negotiations. Because, as the Secretary of State confirmed to me when he came to give evidence before the Select Committee... At the moment, the Cabinet took the decision to leave the Customs Union. I asked him, had you done any economic analysis of what that might mean? And he looked me in the eye and said, no. That, too, is astonishing. And because ministers continue to insist that they can negotiate all of these things, trade in good, trade in services, security and foreign policy, cooperation, policing, information sharing to fight terrorism, the regulation of medicines, aircraft, food safety, and lots of other stuff, the transfer of data, the mutual recognition of qualifications, rolling forward those 30 or so trade deals, and all of the other things, and believe you me, I've learned one thing from being chair of the committee for just over a year, it's a very, 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 very long list of things that need to be sorted out. Because every day I meet people from different industries who say, I know how it works at the moment, Hillary, but when the plug's pulled out, the EU plug is pulled out, when the new one is pushed back in the socket, whatever shape and form it has when it's been negotiated, and someone turns the switch on, is it still going to work in the same way or not? And the answer is, we do not know. And the government claims that all of that can be done by the end of October. Well, um, No one else thinks this is remotely likely. I'm not sure that ministers actually believe it, but the fact that they continue to maintain that it is possible, in my view, just undermines credibility. Uh, And it damages confidence at a time when uncertainty, and business hates uncertainty, is undermining decisions that companies may or may not make about 
their future investment in the United Kingdom. If you were thinking, prior to Brexit, of investing in a new manufacturing plant in the United Kingdom to export that product to the European Union, you absolutely would not make that decision today because when someone says, well, how's the trade going to work between Britain and the EU? The answer is, we don't know. Now, this is incredibly damaging because these are decisions that are not being made. We don't know about them. But remember, we were, up until Brexit, the most successful country in Europe, more successful than France, more successful than Germany, in attracting foreign direct investment. And today I met the representatives of some of that investment from the uh, Japanese employers' organisation in the House of Commons. And the events of this week have reminded us that the government has done something else. It has failed consistently to face up to the consequence of its red lines for the Irish border. Now, however skillful the drafting on full alignment as a fallback, and no matter how insistent ministers are, there will be no checks, no hard border, no infrastructure, which, by the way, I completely support. All of us support maintaining that open border. They have no answer as to how this is going to be achieved, given that every other free trade agreement in the world involves some checks at borders. Some. And this matters even more because the issue in Northern Ireland is not just about trade. It is about the peace process. Now, this Easter, we will mark the 20th anniversary of the signing of the Good Friday Agreement. In my view, a triumph of patient diplomacy and political courage that has wrought a transformation that I never thought that I would see in my lifetime. When I was the age of, of some of you who are sitting in this hall tonight and someone had said to me, don't worry, Hillary, uh, in a few years' time you will see Marty McGuinness and Ian Paisley sitting side by side as the deputy and the first minister of a power-sharing government in Northern Ireland, I would have said to you in all honesty, I'm not sure that's going to happen because hasn't this problem been going on for 400 years? Now, how did the change come about? Well, lots of reasons. But in the end, it is political courage. All conflicts of this sort have two possible... Well, three outcomes. One is stalemate, two is victory for one side, and the third is leaders who say, you know what, we need to compromise in the interests of a better future for all of our citizens. It's brought peace and normality. It's created new institutions like the British Irish Council. But it's also created something that is more intangible but just as precious. It has allowed people living either side of the border to be what they wish to be and not to make a choice between the different identities that increasingly all of us have in this uh, more complex and interconnected world. As Peter Sheridan of Corporation Ireland has put it so eloquently, he said, after the Good Friday Agreement, you had this idea of a region whose inhabitants could be British or Irish or both. Europe made that easier to imagine. And every one of us knows just how important our shared membership of the European Union was to the crafting of the Good Friday Agreement. And every one of us knows that nothing can be allowed to put that agreement at risk as Brexit uh, unfolds. And so the issue of the border has come to symbolise for me the choice that the government has yet still to make about its approach to the next stage of Brexit. We went as a select committee just before Christmas to uh, visit the border in Middletown between Armagh and Monaghan. 
Now, never before have so many British parliamentarians been had their picture taken by so many photographers staring down at a piece of tarmac. <laughs> but that's what we were doing. <clears throat> tarmac, yellow line up to here, border, white line there, Republic of Ireland, Northern Ireland. There was nothing there except cars, quite a dangerous road to cross, cars and lorries going back and forth. But as we stood there, we were told, if we had been at that spot 35 years ago, what would we have found? A customs post, a checkpoint, a police post, an army base, watchtowers, murder. Armagh was notorious, as other parts of Northern Ireland were during the Troubles. And all of those things have now gone. People live their lives either side of the border. You live in the south, you pray in the north. You live in the north, you go get on an exercise bike in the south. You raise your cattle in the north, you send them south to be slaughtered and then go on to market. It's as ridiculous as putting a hard border between Camden and Islington. (laughs) And I did say, when the Foreign Secretary made that extraordinary comment... I said, I think you'll find it's a little bit more complicated than that, uh, which it certainly is. And I came away from that visit understanding much, much more clearly than I had before what is at stake and why we have a responsibility to make sure that that road stays. No barriers, no checks, no infrastructure, lorries and cars and people going back and forth, living their lives and undertaking uh, business. Now, understandably, this issue, along with the money and citizens' rights, uh, including the very important common travel area, because there will continue to be free movement of citizens between the Republic and Northern Ireland and the UK, because the common travel area predated our membership of the common market, it came to dominate the Brexit discussions, and matters came to a head at the end of Phase 1 in December in that rather tricky week, Um, They found a form of words that was enough to allow progress onto phase two, and those words made it clear that Northern Ireland would not be treated any differently to the rest of the United Kingdom, while at the same same time ensuring that there'd be no hard border, no checks, no infrastructure. Now, some called it a fudge, some said it was kicking the can down the road. I did, um, recently in a speech in Dublin, describe it as an attempt at alchemy, Uh, which I think is an ancient art that hasn't quite been perfected, uh, in which an attempt was going to be made to turn the aspiration of full alignment into the goal of an open border. And yesterday we saw the EU Commission attempting to do the same with their draft legal text, which actually said that Northern Ireland is going to remain in the customs union and subject to environmental and agricultural rules because that was their best effort at trying to give effect to the full alignment promise, which is a fallback on a fallback, And when the government says this is completely unacceptable and Northern Ireland should not be separated out, my answer, and lots of people's answer, is to say, OK, come up with your proposal and show us how it is going to work. So this issue really goes to the heart of the choice facing government and parliament about what kind of relationship we want to have. Now, looking ahead, the first thing the negotiators have got to do is to agree a transitional Period. I think a transitional period is a much more accurate description than an implementation period. I don't want to be picky, but I would just say you can only have an implementation period if you've agreed something to implement, and it's precisely because we don't have something to implement that we require a transitional period to negotiate something which we can then subsequently implement. Whatever we call it, it's essential. 
Without it, the UK would in all likelihood fall out of the UK without an agreement. And it is be- it's also essential because with all of this continuing uncertainty, companies are making contingency plans because they sit in their board, they talk to their risk managers, and they say, what's the very worst thing that can happen? Mm, well, the worst thing that could happen is we leave with no deal. Right, can we live with that? Uh, no, we can't. What do we need to do to safeguard against it? We need to do this, this, and this. And that is the argument uh, for the transitional period. And the Chancellor of the Exchequer correctly described it as a wasting asset. He told the, I think it was the Treasury Select Committee in the autumn. He said it's really valuable in January 2018. It's not so valuable in July because some companies will have irrevocably taken decisions because they've got to safeguard against the worst possibly happening. Now, the UK government had to accept, as the Prime Minister did in her Florence speech, that the transitional period will involve staying in the customs union, the single market, accepting the rulings of the European Court of Justice, and continuing with free movement. What we don't know is what is going to happen after the transitional period is over, and we may still not know a great deal about that when the Article 50 process comes to an end, precisely because, in my view, almost all of the negotiations about our future relationship will take place during the transitional period after we have left uh, the European Union at the end of March 2019. Now, it's meant to end in December 2020. What happens if you still haven't concluded those really, really complex negotiations covering a very, very, very long list of things that need to be sorted out? Well, my answer is terribly, well, simple, prolong the transition. And therefore, it's very important that the transition agreement itself includes within it provision for its extension, because if it's silent on the subject, trying to create a whole new status for the United Kingdom as a sort of semi-in, semi-out country uh, would, in my view, be far too uh, complex. And meanwhile, time is running out. Um, We've got to secure the transition, and next month the European Council will adopt its guidelines for the negotiations. And if we're not a bit clear about what we want by then, they might adjust their guidelines accordingly, and we may find options closed off, not by the UK, if we had any options, but by the European Council. And that is why it isn't just about focusing on October, it's about focusing on what's going to happen in the next month. And then... In October, if all goes well and there is an agreement, the House of Commons will have the final say on the draft agreement. And at that point, I would argue that Parliament will expect to know what our future relationship in goods and services is going to be before we vote. And the vague offer of a post-dated cheque for an unspecified agreement simply will not do. And I think ministers should not rely on members of Parliament just accepting whatever they come up with on the grounds that the alternative is no deal. First of all, there is no majority in the House of Commons for no deal. The House of Commons will never vote for no deal. And as the current debate about remaining in a customs union demonstrates, there are alternatives. And if ministers do not start exploring these pretty quickly, then they may find that Parliament decides to do it for them. Now, I want to turn uh, to some of the wider lessons of the referendum result and what has been happening around us uh, in the world at this extraordinary uh, moment in time. 
Dealing with change has been part of the human condition since um, we first appeared on the earth. But I think there is something about the last decade which has been quite unsettling. I, I should say at this point I am at heart an optimist about the future. It's why I get up in the morning. Um, not least because we've seen with our own eyes the ability of humankind to make extraordinary advances in reducing absolute poverty and developing democracy. And the point about reflecting on those achievements is it encourages us to understand and to realise, well, we can do more of it in the future. So what I'm about to say is not an expression of terminal gloom about the future of humankind. It's just a reflection on some of the things that are going around us. Because we, we live in an age of turmoil and uncertainty. We, we look at Syria. We see the continuing bloody echoes of the Arab Spring and the huge movement of refugees. We see the continuing struggle between the secular and the religious. We see a resurgent Russia seeking respect, uvergenia. Uh, it is said... Uh, advancing a velvet glove underneath of which is a iron fist. We see the inexorable dawn of a changing climate, the onward march of technology and innovation. We have a rising global population. By the time my two grandsons reach my age, the world's population will be more than three times greater than when I was born. And the relentless movement of people around the globe, whether they are fleeing conflict or the consequences of a changing climate. And believe you me, if we don't tackle it and sea levels rise, as some scientists, many scientists predict, take a country like Bangladesh, about, what, 140 million people? Most of them live, well, if you're lucky, twice the height of the ceiling above me, above sea level. If they can't live there anymore because it's flooded, you know what Bangladesh is doing? It's moving house. And where's it going to move house to? Probably next door. India, whatever India thinks about it. Look at the coast of China. Here in London, two million people live in a floodplain, protected thus far by the Thames barrier. And thirdly, people moving, seeking a better life that human beings have always done, in part because now, using the phones made in China, they can see much more clearly what life is like in other parts of the world than where they were born and brought up. And I would argue that when the story of this century comes to be written, one of the things that will be described is how we dealt with that flow of human beings across the globe. Now, it's not difficult to see why there is so much uh, uncertainty, although we also live at a time of great opportunity, including technologically. The global crash shook people's confidence. It shook our confidence in the system. Um, and in our belief... In my generation, the belief has always been for parents that your kids in this country and, and many uh, countries, your children will have a better life than the one that you have enjoyed. Now, I'm not sure that that's true anymore. When you think of the ability of children growing up in some parts of the country to be able to afford a home in the community in which they were born and brought up, no chance. A secure job, saving for a pension. A uh, very important issue in universities at the moment because of the dispute with universities uh, UK. And it was in these circumstances, it seems to me, that concerns about immigration and change and the loss of what had been familiar, a wish not to be told by others, 
what to do, stagnant wages, economic inequality, austerity, globalisation, a sense of powerlessness, a loss of identity, and a belief that Britain had somehow given up that which had made us great, led 52% of the population on that day in June 2016 to go down to the polling station and send us, us, a message that they were not happy with the way things were. And if my constituents who had resisted all of my entreaties to vote Remain, uh, were here today, they would probably look you and me in the eye, those of us who were Remainers, and say, we didn't think you were listening to us. You're listening now, aren't you? Because they had seen the power of political expression and a vote to bring about a change, and believe you me, they knew exactly what they were doing. And those... And those who say, well, you didn't know what you were doing, you were lied to, you don't really understand it, it's very complex, completely misunderstand what went on. And we have to respect our democracy and we have to acknowledge that other people have a different view. Now, I think more than anything else, it was a cry for control. In a world in which change is happening now at a pace that is unprecedented, and when it's sometimes seen particularly to the older generation, they look around them, they see what's changed, and they feel they have barely any control at all about what is going on in the world and in their communities. And yet, on the other hand, we have the 48% who woke up on that Friday morning. They are feeling insecure. They are feeling a sense of loss. They are worried about the future that they saw being taken away from them, and I'm sure that was a feeling felt by many people here, And the echoes of that campaign, which showed one thing very clearly, we are split absolutely down the middle as a nation, 52 to 48%, continue to be felt within our politics, and if I may say so, Tony, within the select committee. Because although we strive for consensus, look at our minutes, if you've got nothing else to do, and you will see a number of the key paragraphs in our reports, the committee divided, because I think it's more important we reach a view, albeit by majority, than just produce a report that doesn't say anything uh, particular at all. Um, And I would just say to those, many people wrote to me after the referendum and said, you don't have to vote for Article 50. It was an advisory referendum. It was only 37% of the population. Technically, it was advisory. In political terms, was it advisory? No, it wasn't. This wasn't the government saying, we're having a bit of trouble. Can we just have a quick show of hands? What do you think we should do? It was quite clear the people were given the responsibility to take the decision, and it was quite clear that Parliament would need to implement it. And now we have to reach a deal with the EU, as well as address the other political questions, in my view, that were given expression by the referendum result. Um, And for me, the biggest political question, not just for the UK, but for the European Union and many countries in the world, is this. How are we going to hold in a new balance what I would describe as the two great forces of our age that were addressed by Roosevelt and Churchill when they uh, met in 1941 and drew up the principles that subsequently became known as the Atlantic Charter? The first, the self-evident truth that nations must work together to secure better economic and social conditions for all as we try to deal with the great challenges facing the world at a time when they pay increasingly less heed to national borders. That's one truth. And the second, the innate thirst for self-determination, devolution, control. 
for me, the word that dominated the referendum. And understanding and then responding to these, because I think the message sent was, we don't think the balance is quite right. And don't forget, President Macron came to Britain, interviewed by Andrew Marr, and said in the course of that interview, you know what, if we'd had a referendum in France, France might have voted to leave too. Now, pause. What message does that send about the current balance between the two in Europe? And it's important that we address that, because how else are we going to see off the populists who seek to exploit the frustration, the fear, the anger, the feeling that many people have by promising a return to a fictitious golden age? I think in Nigel Farage's case, for some reason I came to the conclusion it was probably 1957, but I have no uh, basis in fact for arguing that point when actually they represent an inward-looking uh, nationalism that is a road to nowhere. And, of course, some of them have sought to fan the flames of prejudice towards our fellow citizens, to attack the judiciary, to attack MPs for voting for what they think is right, and undermining a free media which represents a, a threat to our way of life. And if the last century taught us anything, it is that international cooperation is at the heart of economic and political security for us all. We became a powerful nation through the Industrial Revolution and colonial conquest. That's how we became the most powerful country in the world. And in the latter part of the 20th century, we heard the cry for self-determination from the colonies and realised that game was up. And we came to understand in the modern world, if you wish to have sovereignty and exercise it, you do that through influence, through relationships, through partnerships with others. And one of the tragedies of the Brexit vote is our voice will be less influential in the world because we're walking away from one of the most important uh, partnerships. And there is a great deal of uncertainty in other parts of the world. We also need to stand up for the rules-based system that was created out of the ashes of the Second World War. There are resurgent climate change deniers, aid cutters isolationists who would have us turn away from our responsibilities one to another and if they ever succeeded far from taking back control they would lessen our power and our ability to shape uh, events so this is no time for us to be retreating from what helps to give each of us security and influence in the modern world and for me the one word that sums up the condition of humankind at the beginning of the 21st century is interdependence that is the very definition of what it is to be a human being. And our earliest ancestors, uh, I read somewhere, probably on Wikipedia, so I hope it's true, appeared on the earth five to seven million years ago. But, you know, it wasn't until 50 years ago on Christmas Eve that we finally, as human beings, came to understand what that interdependence means. And that was the moment when the Apollo astronauts, while reading from the book of Genesis took, William Anders was the man with the camera, he took that photograph of the Earth. The first time we had seen our small and fragile planet in all its blue and green and white splendour, floating in the black eternity of space. And if that photograph and that moment didn't teach us that we need to learn to live alongside one another in a way that is peaceful and sustainable, that we have to accept our responsibilities to our neighbours, even if we've never met them, we've never been introduced, and they live on the other side of the world. The only way we can do that is to work together 
as nation states. And I believe that cooperation and self-determination do not have to be in tension with each other, but can be embraced in a way that fosters a sense of solidarity and common purpose. So in conclusion, it seems to me that that is the scale of the challenge that we face. And for Europe, they now must have a debate about their future. On the one hand, there's the view that says, right, now the Brits have gone ever closer, faster, deeper union. Mr Juncker made a speech after the referendum that expressed that view. Everyone in the euro, everyone in Schengen. And then there is a more subtle vision laid out by President Macron in his speech at the Sorbonne, in which, yes, he wants to bring reform to bring the Eurozone countries together, but he also acknowledged that there was a case for a multi-speed, multi-layer Europe. Now, it's not our part anymore, but I'm very much in the second camp, because even though we're leaving the European Union, I want Europe to remain a strong organisation with a big voice in the world, and it seems to me learning that lesson about balance is the best way to maintain the unity of the European Union in the future. And the task for British politics is not to divide, we've had quite enough of that already, but to bring people together, to heal the wounds of the referendum, show that we can find a way forward as we take back control. And if the government continues to prove itself incapable of doing that, then I think it will be Parliament's responsibility to take on that task, because never before in our democracy and the way in which it works has this been so important to the future of our country. Thank you very much. Um, Hilary, thank you. Uh, just as a first question, yep. um, you mentioned the fact that people who voted, uh, the 52% of people who voted for Brexit, uh, and in many parts of the country significantly higher proportions than that, were voting because they were, in your words, not happy. And we can, you know, we'll argue till the end of time about exactly yep. what not happy meant, but we can guess at some of the elements of what not happy was about. Now, Given the government has got its entire bandwidth filled with, as it were, legislation, legislation backing uh, EU law into the UK's legal system and the other bills that are going to be going through Parliament, the civil service by common consent does, has very little time for much else. The government has little time for much else. Is there not a... And I know this is, a, this is an easy question, but I'm not going to deconstruct it a bit. But, I mean, in a sense, all of these things that people were responding to and not yeah. happy about are not going to get tackled at all, are they? Uh, I, I think you're right. Uh, to well, judge the by EU the... will, but everything else won't. Yeah, partly because of the amount of, of time it's taking in Parliament, partly because, I mean, it's, it's not my responsibility or my problem. I've no idea what a Conservative government is for. <laughs> now, that's a long-held view of mine, but I'm, <laughs> um, I, I think it's particularly true at the moment because, in fairness to the Prime Minister, she stood on the steps of Downing Street when she became PM... And did say some things about mm. that list that I uh, expressed a moment ago. And Ed Miliband, I think, famously tweeted at her and said, Oi, you're pinching some of my ideas. And then what was the first domestic policy announcement? The return of grammar schools. I mean, give me strength. Because people forget very quickly it was parents responsible for the comprehensive revolution because 75% of parents had been through the experience of opening that envelope, seeing their kid had failed, weeping, 
then composing themselves to tell their beloved 11-year-old son or daughter, I'm afraid the system says you're a failure, and we are still living with the legacy of that appalling policy. Now, if that's what they're about, well, that's not going to address anything. But I think you are right. And for the Conservative Party, when eventually she's tapped on the shoulder and they decide to elect a new leader, it will be for he or she and the contestants to try and lay out a vision at the very moment when they know they have a terrible problem with younger voters, because you look at how people voted, older people much more likely to support Brexit, uh, younger people to back Remain, younger people much more likely to vote Labour in the last general election uh, than older voters. And I I fear that you are right. And um, it's up to the government to demonstrate that they are going to change that, but I, I can't see that happening at the moment, for all the reasons, Tony, you've just well, outlined. I'm going to ask the more difficult version of the same question, okay. which is, I mean, the Labour Party has, hasn't got much of an idea either, has it, really? <laughs> I mean, I mean, there, I, I, you know... There, about what? Well, about, about sorting out all the things that led 52% of people to vote to the well, I think Well, I, I think investing an additional £5 billion in the National Health Service would be a good start. I think lifting the borrowing cap on local authorities so they can build more council houses would be a very good step. Uh, because we have a housing crisis. Um, Partly we need more council houses. Partly we need to give communities control of where the houses get built, who gets them, because then you can say to communities, if you don't give the planning permissions and use your powers, no good coming to whoever the Secretary of State for Communities and Local Government is and saying, my son or daughter can't afford to buy a house in this community, if at the same time you're protesting against the latest planning application. Come on, let's be honest with each other. We have a structural problem, and by the way, the volume house builders will never build enough houses to solve the crisis because they will build to sell at the price they want to. So there's a number of examples I could give. Investment in infrastructure, bringing uh, the railways back into public ownership, and big investment in um, infrastructural change in this country. It would be a lot better than what we've got at the moment. But, I mean, just to press you on that, I mean, the, the, the areas of the country and the people in the country who have been you know, left behind by decades yeah. of economic change and who now may be further affected by the you know, um, move to, more, you know, to autonomous working and all of this sort of stuff, the new um, AI and all of that. So um, with all of that going on as well, I mean, any political party, to put us you know, going back to the softer version of this question, would have to come up with policies yeah. that addressed... Um, underlying realities about the UK economy that go back 40, 50, 60 years. I agree with you. They've never quite been tackled. You know, the economy of peripheral parts of the country, some of them not so peripheral, actually, never quite been tackled before. And now, unless they are tackled, the question is surely what happens to the resentment and the feeling of not happy, which I think is a very good way of putting it, that people expressed? Well, I think there's going to be some disappointment Because if you saw Brexit as the answer to all of your problems, uh, I don't think it's going to work out that way. I think we've been subject to chronic short-termism. Now, that affects um, a lot of countries. It's a product of um, having to pay dividends. Look at what happened to Carillion. In the end, they were borrowing money to pay the dividends. Well, that is not sustainable. Why did the global economic crash happen? Because no one wanted to question... Banks lending 120% of the value of the property at five to six times the salary of the person sitting in front of them. Now, who was responsible for that? The bank for offering, the person for taking it, or the government for allowing it? The honest answer is all three were responsible. And, you know, you read about the South Sea bubble, you think, oh, it could never happen again, or the tulip bubble. 
and then you remember what happened 10 years ago. So that's one thing. Secondly, investment in physical infrastructure and skills. Because how are we going to keep the British economy strong? We're not going to bring back mass manufacturing from the Far East any more than Donald Trump is going to bring back mass manufacturing to Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. And I think the people who supported him probably know that, but they would say at least he understood why we were unhappy about the change that we had seen. And what keeps us the fifth or sixth strongest economy of the world? It is our institutions like this, it is our research base, it is our innovation, it is the new industries that have grown. Who would have predicted 40 years ago the growth of the computer games industry? That is where technology has brought a new industry that we have a particular strength in, uh, in medicines, in research, in high-tech manufacturing. So you have to create a climate and a country in which people will wish to invest in those things. And the best defence against the onward march of technological change, rendering old skills no longer wanted, is to invest in the new skills and the right approach to be able to adapt. Now, that's not easy for any of us. Let's be honest. It's not easy. And if instead of the manufacturing jobs having gone, a lot of cheaper lawyers, politicians and medics had turned up in Britain and undercut those who were working, you'd have a whole other bunch of people who'd been very cross about it. So let's understand why people felt the way that they did, and still do, and the challenge for politics is to show we have the capacity to respond. Okay, very good. Uh, now, lots of hands going up right. immediately, which is good. Take three at a time. Yeah. Yes, so let's okay, have a whatever. look. Um, as ever, I'd like to have uh, one or two uh, female hands going up, if I can encourage them as well. Um, there's one person here, one there, and one there. Haven't done so well so far, but I'll... All right. Can I start? Can I start? It's you. Go on. I don't know if it's worse. Anyway, I think that um, London and the UK has been uh, quite successful in the last 20 years because uh, they, the main reason, according to me, they attract high talent. So the, the best talent came to, to London and to UK. So now that there is this Brexit going on, and I'm quite negative about uh, the outcome of Brexit because I think by, if they won't find an agreement, so there should be potentially another Brexit, I think that uh, it's going to be extremely tough for this country. So my question is if the government is considering what to do in order to, to cope with this potential negative problem. Okay, question about talent and the future and migration. Yep. Okay, and then here, and I'll come to you very soon. Uh, Mr. Ben, you Wait for the microphone because it's uh, being recorded. Mr. Ben, you said in your speech that the achievement of the Good Friday Agreement very much depended on the political, uh, the political leaders at that time who showed a great ability to seek a compromise. Mm -hmm. Why is it amongst the 650 parliamentarians, of whom a majority apparently are in favour of Remain, has not one single leader of consequence emerged to show the leadership that's required to achieve a compromise which we, can, which we all seek? Uh, can I just, sorry, sir, can I just be clear? A, a compromise over what? Leadership in order to get a solution to this problem. We don't know... The Brexit problem or the Northern Ireland problem? No, the Brexit, the oh, Brexit, the Brexit problem. problem. Why okay. don't we have leadership in, of the Remain side that states clearly what we should be doing? And can I just can I ask you, so what do you think it should be? I'm not a, I'm, I'm not a member of Parliament. No, I know I. you're not, but, I, but, I, but genuinely, is there an outcome that you would like? 
Yes, I'd like to see a leader, a leader in Parliament who makes it absolutely clear that they want us to remain and that ah, they fine. stand up and be counted. Fine. In other words, to overturn the referendum result. Fine. OK, now I just wanted to get or that. Least, at least, presumably, yeah. at least to do it in, in a sort of more managed way. I'll, take, I'll yeah. come back to you over here. Um, hello. Thank you for being with us. Um, I would like to ask you the following. If Brexit proves to be more damaging than initially thought, yep. so if, as you put it, people turn out to be disappointed by the outcome, should they have the chance to, to be heard for a second time yep. on the issue? And as a broader question, when policy decisions are made via referenda, can the people change their mind? And how often? Thank you. <laughs> That's a very good question. It is. Right, uh, sir, your first question, talent. Well, we have three million talented Europeans in Britain at the moment, uh, and I hope that all of them will stay. But this is a particular concern of all of the employers I meet, who will say how important the contribution of, of European citizens, citizens from the rest of the world, plus all the people who live in the United Kingdom... Uh, how, in particularly in some sectors, it is people from different backgrounds and cultures sparking off each other that generates research ideas. You know, the most cited research in the world is research that tends to have been undertaken by people from lots of different nationalities. That's just a fact. Well, I was told that when I went to um, Cambridge recently on a tour of the Bioscience Park, the only tour I've ever been on where the two tour guides were both winners of the Nobel Prize. <laughs> And I thought that was quite something. And we saw um, Francis Crick's uh, blackboard. But anyway, um, the big question is what kind of future immigration policy are we going to have? And that is for the government to determine. And in all of this uncertainty, the one bit that will be entirely in our hands is that future immigration policy. Now, the Home Office is trying to weigh it up because on the one hand is the net migration target and the Prime Minister's wish to get net migration down even though she wasn't able to get it down from the bit she did control when she was Home Secretary, more than net migration from the bit she said she didn't control, which was the EU. And then, on the other hand, how do we continue to meet the needs for nurses in our hospitals, people picking fruit and veg, lecturers here at the LSE, and all of those things. And we need an honest debate as a society about the need for migration, and I met many people who were Leave voters who said to me, Hillary, I'm not saying that immigration should stop. I just think we should have a bit of control over it. That was what they argued. And I think that that is a debate to be won because when my constituents find their operations are being cancelled because there are not enough nurses, I don't think they'll say, well, that's Brexit for you. Yes, I will put up with the pain. They'll be saying to me as their MP, issue some more visas for some more nurses because I want to get my hip or my knee done. Now... Your question does go to the heart of, of the role of uh, members of Parliament, and I tried to address it in what I said for this reason. Um, there are those who say that Parliament should just stand up and say, you know what, British people, what you have voted to do is wrong, and we are not going to implement it. Now, I said that if we did that... We have a bit of a crisis of confidence in our politics in, in Europe, many other countries. That would be as nothing to the crisis of confidence there would be in British politics if that were to happen. Because I tell you what, you'd soon have a populist government in the United Kingdom and the kind of people that you may be looking to at the moment to provide that leadership, well, we probably wouldn't be here. And it's, it's a 
not a popular with everyone who's Remainer. It's not, but it's a conclusion I've come to. We fought the campaign. We lost. We're Democrats. We accept the outcome. Now, it then links to the third question, which is, uh, of course, people have an opportunity to change their minds. My view on a second referendum at the moment is this. We've just had one. We lost. Secondly, Europe has a bit of a history, let's be honest, of saying to countries that produce uh, the wrong result, ask the Irish, ask the French. After a while, they say, um, could you have another referendum, please? And this time, could you give us the result that we want? And that feeds into the view of leavers who will say, ah, you see, you don't actually respect democracy. And the third argument, which is not unimportant, is at the moment, I'm not at all convinced we get a different result. Now, there's been a bit of movement in the polls, but uh, I am not convinced. Now, that is not to say it's at some point in the future, but we're going to run out of time while we're still members. If the economy really were going down the pan and there was a huge, overwhelming clamour, then that would be different. But at the moment, while there are real risks to the future of the economy, it's not going down the pan, and there is not an enormous clamour. And the Liberal Democrats fought the last election saying, right, we'll give you a second referendum. 48% of people voted Remain. We're going to absolutely clean up last year, and they didn't do very well. So for me, those are the reasons why I don't think that is a practical political proposition at the moment. Where the leadership comes in, coming back to your question, sir, is we're leaving the institutions. That's what the leavers voted for. They did not determine the future of our economic relationship. And when I stand up and say, I think we should stay in a customs union, and we get accused of betraying the referendum result, I say, I'm not betraying the referendum result. I'm providing leadership for what I think is the right thing to do in order to sustain a strong economy, because there are other countries. Turkey is an example. It's in a sort of customs union with the EU. It's not a member state. Norway is in the EEA that has a close relationship with the internal market. It's not an EU member state. Now, that is the kind of leadership we need at the moment, and we need Conservative Remainers to come out and vote for that customs union amendment when it um, comes before the House of Commons, because that will show to the government, I'm afraid there is another way. And that's the kind of leadership I think you'll find a lot of people are trying to provide at the moment. Okay, and just one thought on the migration uh, question. If you look at the most recent migration figures, there has been in the last year a fall in EU migration to the UK, but intriguingly an uptick in non-EU migration to the UK. And, of course, the government's yet got to, you know, the bit that they do control has started to rise uh, in the most recent statistics. Now, I did promise the gentleman here a question, and then... uh, No, no, we need the microphone for the recording, I'm afraid, and... My question is not a question. I say that the idea that uh, the United Kingdom, when, when using... Direct democracy takes it upon itself to declare the referendum as democratic is completely wrong. There's nothing democratic about asking a question like that, yes or no. Okay. Because any kind of referendum refers only to one single political question, which is what the Swiss use when they use direct, refer- direct uh, uh, elections. We okay. are completely wrong here. Okay, it's a wrong, it's a wrong idea. Okay, that's fine. Straightforward question. Uh, okay. And I think a lot of MPs probably don't like referendums that much at the best of yep. times. So, yep, over here. Um, how may Brexit kind of affect issues surrounding the Schengen zone and how that's been changing with um, the building of 
kind of frontiers in Hungary and in the Balkans uh, following the migrant crisis. Yeah. Okay, and I'll take another one nearby. The gentleman there with the red lanyard thing, probably an LSE one, actually. Um, Hilary, thank you for the stimulating observations. A, a, a security question. I want to understand how much work the Select Committee has done in relation to the issue of sanctions. Um, I'm an advisor to uh, Stefan de Mistura uh, uh, and the UN uh, peace talks, and I'm very interested, given the fact that the UK has driven sanctions policy, uh, has constructed uh, the design of those policies in relation to Ukraine and Syria. Uh, And I'm interested to know whether or not you are, uh, and the Labour Party is just looking for an alignment, or whether they're seeking to remain in the room within the context of a renewed security compact relating to sanctions, and for that matter, other intelligence-sharing arrangements. Okay, straightforward. I'll come Um, and take some questions at the back next. So, go on. I think, look, on your question, and I respect uh, your view that you think it wasn't democratic, but it's the second time that a referendum has been used in the United Kingdom to resolve the question of our membership of the European institution... It was the Labour government that had the referendum in 1975 where the people voted two to one to stay in the common market. And it was a Conservative government that held the referendum this time. In both cases, the party leaders had a problem with their own party and a referendum was a way of resolving it. Well, it was because it said, well, it doesn't matter what we say amongst ourselves, the people are going to decide. Now, I I hear your argument, but... I think one could say, after all, we had referenda... Should we have had a referendum to bring in Scottish devolution? I think that's a profound constitutional change. I think you should have public consent. Uh, Scotland couldn't declare independence without a referendum, and I'm glad to say that the SNP lost in 2014. But it, it is a way of dealing with really, really big questions. Now, on Schengen, we were never in the Schengen um, free movement zone, which showed one of the ways that we were able to exercise influence in the EU uh, not to have that uh, imposed upon us and other member states not to. We are, however, very much reliant on information that comes from the Schengen Information System 2 that tells us about people who might do bad things who we don't want in the country or in other European countries because we do face a terrorist uh, threat. It's been very difficult in Europe coping with the refugees, and in other European countries, it's not inter-EU migration that's the question. It is refugee migration. After all, Chancellor Merkel said to a million people, come and find shelter in uh, Germany. And the AFD got 13.5% of the vote in the German election. Uh, I think they're now polling slightly ahead Mm. of the SPD. Now, if that shouldn't give us shivers, given the history not all that long ago, of the Second World War uh, and the Nazi menace, I don't know uh, what should. So at least the EU is there, and, uh, and it's not perfect in dealing with that problem, and you refer to Hungary and other states, but imagine individual European countries trying to deal with the refugee crisis from Syria and indeed from Libya in the absence of the European Union. And therefore, that's why we need it, even though it is really difficult. Look, on um, uh, your question, sir, about sanctions and and foreign policy, 
I'm sure the morning of the referendum result, President Putin said, good, Europe's weaker, Russia will be stronger. And I welcome genuinely the speech the Prime Minister gave at the Munich Security Conference because she set out what I think is self-evidently the right approach. We need a new treaty as part of our new relationship that enables to continue to participate. It will require some give on the part of the 27 member states. Now, if you're in the room, you're observer, we're not going to have a, a vote. But actually, foreign policy was never decided by votes. It was unanimity. The UK can choose to align itself, as you said, to the decision of the others. Uh, does a decision on sanctions, and we indeed play a leading role in respect of Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine, is it stronger if it's the 27 and the United Kingdom than the 27 without the United Kingdom? Well, of course it's stronger. And I hope that there will be a very positive response to what uh, the Prime Minister had said. It's something on the Select Committee that, that we have called for, um, and we've taken some evidence on it, but it seems to me a self-evident uh, path to pursue, and I hope that sufficient flexibility is shown to find a way in practice to be in the room having the conversation, because that is, it seems to me, to the benefit of the 27 as well as to the benefit of the United Kingdom. I'm going to go to the back for some questions now, but again, I'd like to have a mixture of um, male and female questions, if I can. So the first question I saw is, of course, man there. But um, uh, Good evening, Mr. Go for it. Thank you for uh, this evening's talk. Um, uh, I wanted to make the point that Italy is dealing with the migration crisis with next to no help from the European Union. Um, and... Uh, I wonder what you make of that. They go to the polls on Sunday, I believe. Yeah. Okay, and can I have... Um, hold on, I'm trying to get... All right. Um, an arm here on the, on the gangway, and a man way over there, young man over there uh, as well. All right. So for the, for the last sort of 18 months, we've been having the levers um, sort of rubbishing the, the risks of the Irish uh, peace process. I think you're the first speaker who's actually used the word death um, in relation to, to the border. I just wonder what you think it will take for people like the former mayor of London to wake up to, to the risk. You know, do, do we actually have to see the return of Irish terrorism for them to stop rubbishing the threat? Okay, and over here. Um, you mentioned that, that you thought there should be a provision in the um, article that there should, we should be able to extend... Could you just wave your hand, because I can't quite... Right, yeah. Oh, so right over there, right. Yes, sir. To um, extend the transitional period. Yes. And I was wondering, if, this, if it were to get to that stage, how long would you extend the transitional period, and how would this sort of cause the government to actually come to any deals if they have this extra time? Right, well, thank you uh, for those. You're absolutely right, sir, about the, the huge challenge that Italy has faced, also Malta, uh, Greece. Um, now, the, the, the routes that people have taken have varied depending on what's going on. And let's not forget Turkey, Iraq, Jordan, Lebanon. Lebanon's population has increased by 25% because of the Syrian conflict, and that is the equivalent to 16 million people turning up in the United Kingdom requiring shelter, health care, and all of the other things, and an economic livelihood for the future. So they really have got it, because in the main, 
when there's a crisis, most people just go to the first place that is safe and stop. And it's those who have means and, uh, uh, including the means to pay the smugglers, that manage to get uh, to uh, other places. And it raises, it seems to me, a broader issue for the, for the world, which is this. Referring back to what I said about the movement of people around the globe for a variety of reasons, if you did end up with large-scale environmental refugees because we'd failed to tackle climate change, how would we divvy that up as to where they went? We, we, have, we haven't even begun to talk about a, a kind of global mechanism in the same way that Europe tried to agree a mechanism for divvying up the refugees amongst the different European states. Germany made a huge contribution. Ours is relatively small. Some countries, they just don't want anybody at all. And I think we're going to need some kind of new international treaty at some point to make that happen. And we, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen in the Italian elections, but uh, we will all be watching that extremely carefully. I would not hold your breath, sir, for the uh, Foreign Secretary to realise the errors of his ways on the subject of Northern Ireland. Um, because how could you make such a crass comment as trying to compare the challenge on the border in Northern Ireland with operating the congestion charge? I'm sorry, it just, it, as your question alluded to, it shows a complete lack of understanding. And the reason I spoke at some length about Ireland is because this is where the choices, the trade-offs and the consequences really come home. And the government knows it's in trouble on this. It knows it, but because of the weakness of the Prime Minister, she doesn't know how to find a way through it. On the transition, the best guide I can give you is the answer that Keir Starmer gave when he was asked, how long should the transition be? It is also an answer to the age-old question, how long should a piece of string be? He said, as short as possible, but as long as necessary. (laughs) Now, I'd focus on the as long as necessary because it would be absurd to reach December 2020. We're in the middle of detailed negotiations about our future trading relationship and everything else, including security, and the clock stops. What are we going to do? Are we going to impose tariffs to then take them down in six months or a year when we finalise the negotiations? No. But as I said, having to then negotiate a new um, departure antechamber would be really difficult. What's the sensible thing to do to prolong it? Now, there's politics in this. Will the 27 want us to prolong the transition? Because they might say, well, you're you're continuing to get all of the benefits, and we would probably have to pay some more money in if we went beyond December 2020. And would the, the British government agree to it? Well, if you haven't completed the negotiations, you should always give yourself flexibility in negotiations rather than tying your hands because tying your hands can become extremely inconvenient when you want to wriggle free at the crucial moment because you haven't quite achieved what it was you set out to do in the first place. Now, we can probably just take one more round. OK, one I more round. To... OK, yeah. you tell me. Now, um, let's try and find uh, female questioner, please. Come on, somebody somewhere. I'll try my... Okay. All right. Um, man here in the green jumper... Big hand there, the middle at the back. And one at the front here. Please. 
I just want to ask about Labour's developing policy, having arrived at the more bloodless option of staying in the customs union. Do you think that Labour will evolve to staying in the single market, or do you think that the problem, particularly with free movement of people, will prove insurmountable, uh, even though um, some of the anger that you alluded to was caused by non-migration underlying issues to do with economic left-behindness? Right. Who's got... Who did I say next? Somewhere in the middle. In the, yeah. yeah, and one here in the front. Uh, thank, thank you very much um, for your talk. Uh, four years ago, here at the LSE, um, I heard Nigel Farage speak just ahead of the European elections where UKIP cleaned up. And uh, he, he said that if you try to impose a new identity on the diverse peoples of Europe, that's not a recipe for peace, and harmony, it's a recipe for, for violence and ugliness. And so my question goes to your, your title. I'm wondering uh, what you think about what next for the European Union, yep. with, with Britain no longer in it, with Britain's voice no longer in it, and, and if I may say as, as a non-Brit, um, I, I find Britain one of the more reasonable voices within the European Union. So what, what do you think comes next uh, for all the um, uh, for the nationalisms in in Europe without Britain's voice in it. Okay, very good. And here, so um, my question is a variation on a sort of Labour response to what's going on. Yep. Professor Travers teased you a little bit about that Labour didn't necessarily look much better on the Brexit policy. It's very easy to make fun of the current government and the shambles that they are in. Yep. But why should the British electorate have much confidence that if we were to change government? that Labour would do much better, given what's going on with Corbyn and momentum? Why should we expect you guys to handle the situation better? Uh, okay. Well, I, I would observe, I think it would be harder to handle the situation any worse than it's being handled at the moment. Uh, so, you know, it would be upwards. Uh, that, that's the first thing I would say. Secondly, we, we've got a clear policy now on a customs union. The government says, yeah, we want to stay in a customs union, but we want to do our own free trade deals. And Europe says, well, hang on, you can't do both but you can have a CETA-type deal if you want. OK for goods, terrible for services, four-fifths of the British economy is services. So that's one thing. Secondly, we start out from a position, and that links it to your question, sir, on the single market. I said that the issue of free movement is difficult because there was a clear message sent, the search for control. But we start out from trying to maintain as much alignment as possible in order to try and get a good deal on services, Whereas the government says, no, no, we want to start talking about how much we're going to diverge. And that makes the negotiations much, much, much more complicated. So it seems to me on those two counts alone, a Labour government would have a much more sensible approach. Uh, We don't want to race to the bottom. We will, of course, uh, support workers' rights um, and lots of other things that are important to us. So I think it would be a definite uh, advance on where we are at the moment. And I would also say this, that from the European point of view, they say, well, you can't have a kind of pick-and-mix Brexit. But when you look at the models, Norway, Ukraine, Switzerland, the CETA deal, um, Turkey, semi-customs union with the EU, there are lots of different models. And if the EU can agree those with other countries, then we shouldn't completely buy at face value it's not possible with the rules. We, uh, we cannot be flexible. 
yeah, if you want to be flexible, you can be flexible, but they need to make sure that in the end it's not a deal that gives us everything. Otherwise, their argument you can't be as good, as well off outside as you were in is completely undermined. So I understand the tensions that they face. Um, Look, uh, when it comes to identity, I am a quarter English, I'm a quarter Scots, I'm half American, I'm British, I am European, I'm a citizen of the world, and I'm a long-suffering supporter of Tottenham Hotspur Football Club. So (laughs) we, we have multiple identities, increasingly so, in the modern world. I did try and respond to your question in my remarks when when I said I think the EU faces a choice between speeding down the federalising route, which I don't think will work. It will work for some countries, but there are enough of the 27 for whom that is not, it seems to me, what they want. Or they can reflect in that quiet moment, which will eventually come, why are these populist movements in many of our countries? Why did Britain go? Why might have France gone? And say, how are we going to adjust? Because all empires, and I don't mean that in a disrespectful way about the European Union, it is a description, all empires need to adapt to prosper and to survive, just as we as a society and we as individuals need to adapt to prosper and survive and grow uh, into the future. And I think... That's why I was keen tonight to talk about what I thought were the lessons for others in the European Union as well as the lessons for the United Kingdom. Great. We're going to stop a little bit early this evening because uh, Hillary has to do some family hospital visiting. But just before we finish, I'd just like to sort of conclude by saying a number of things. I mean, Nigel Farage was mentioned at the end, and I'd just like to make the point, although this evening's been somewhat critical of Brexit, the school has a... Uh, a sort of tradition of free speech, and we've had a number of events, uh, no, rightly so, a number of events uh, which have undoubtedly articulated the alternative optimistic case for Brexit. So just so everybody knows, we are keeping all voices on the stage here. Um, I think uh, this evening has been a fascinating analysis from Hillary of the remarkable complexities of Brexit, the huge political challenge for the government and also of course as I said myself at the beginning and it's come up uh, uh, during Hillary's talk um, about the effectively the standoff that's going on between parliament and the government a most interesting thing and in the resolution of that as you said I think will be the resolution to all of this and on a light-hearted note as you leave Uh, Anybody who thinks that the borough boundaries in London are easy should go and look at the small white sign on the the railings just opposite. We're on the Camden-Westminster border here. Try to disentangle what they say about where you should park between the two boroughs, but I'll leave you to do that yourself. Um, I'd like to thank uh, Daniela Antigoni and all the students who've looked after us here this evening, Uh, but most particularly I'd like to thank Hilary Benn for coming back to the school and giving us such a great talk. Hilary, thank you.